So the book of Hebrews, which is what we're journeying through, says to the Hebrews uh, that it was writing to, and to you and I, that we are living in the wilderness spiritually. What do I mean by that? What does the book of Hebrews mean? Well, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians in the first century, and it puts them in the sandals or the shoes of the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt, and then God had miraculously brought them out of slavery, and they were on the journey to the promised land, but they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And here's a few things about life in the desert. I don't know if any of you have visited a desert. You've probably driven through it. How many of you have driven through the desert on the way to Uluru or somewhere else? Or you've gone... Okay, the thing about deserts is typically you pass through them. It's not somewhere where you want to live. The only people who typically live in deserts are people who are forced there by, uh, really by genocide. So, for example, in southern Africa, you have the Khoisan or the Bushmen people who live in the deserts. And, it, and when white settlers arrived, they went, oh, these people love living in the deserts. They're so... They don't love... Do you know why they ended up living in the desert? Because there was a massive migration of Bantu people down from sort of central Africa, and they were, they were a warlike group of people. They were pastoralists. The Khoisan were hunter-gatherers. And as they moved down the east coast of Africa, the Khoisan were driven off the arable lands, off the well-watered lands, and they moved into the desert. Because deserts are not a comfortable place to live. You pass through. Deserts are full of pain and hardship very often. And that was the case for the Israelites. They'd been in Egypt. They'd experienced God powerfully in Egypt, didn't they? You know, there was a new plague every day. He turned up, you know, there's boils, there's frogs, there's blood, there's death, there's amazing presence of God to rescue them and bring them out, part the Red Sea, drown the Egyptian army on the way to the land of milk and honey. And then they hit the desert. And because of their sin, for 40 years, they wander and they wander and they wander. And in the desert, they start to go, oh, God, you've given up on us. Maybe we should have stayed in Egypt because that was better. They're running out of water. So they go, we need a new leader who can take us back to Egypt. The food's pretty bad in the desert. It's just manna after manna after manna. And they're like, man, the cucumbers in Egypt, they were so much better. Let's go back to Egypt. They go, the leader, God, you've given us is not much chop. Let's vote in another leader. They go, God himself isn't much good. So the first thing they do is they make a golden calf. They want a God like the gods we had in Egypt. Because, you know, they're just in pain and they're struggling. And it seems like God is absent. Sound familiar? Like, isn't that our lives? Not all the time, but a lot of the time. I mean, if, if you this morning are somebody who is a person of faith and you're a follower of Jesus, you know, for sure, you're not in Egypt anymore. You're not in slavery to sin and death. We've established that. You go, yeah, I, man, I prayed the prayer. I checked the box. I got baptized. I joined the church. I signed up for this journey. Maybe you're like, I thought it would be a whole lot easier. <laughs> maybe when I started, I thought I'd get to the promised land a whole lot quicker. And maybe now you're like, this life is tough. There's a spiritual wilderness where, you know what? It seems like God, God was great back then. Maybe when you were 15 years old and you had a profound conversion experience like I did. God was great back then. And man, I'm sure he's going to be great one day. But right now, it's hard. Where are you, Lord? Why, why is life so difficult? Why, why do my prayers go unanswered? Uh, and why am I tempted 
to give up on this. And the book of Hebrews is written to people just like us. And it says that when we're in that situation, we need counseling. We need counseling. I'll tell you just how much we need counseling. Uh, I was on, on uh, Facebook the other day, and a friend of a friend shared with me, just, uh, just shared the link to a very prominent Christian's blog from the U.S., and he's been a 30-year worship pastor, creative arts leader of mega churches, you know, started and sold two successful creative arts companies, great leader, and someone who from a distance, I'd always thought, wow, he's an amazing Christian man, creative artist, does all this stuff. And then I saw through his blog, you know, he, uh, 30 years into his marriage and into his career, he had a midlife crisis. It looks, as I read the backstory, he had an affair. He divorced his wife. And as a result of that, he's estranged, not just from his wife, but is from his two adult children and his grandchildren. So six years ago, he was divorced. He hasn't seen his two kids since then. And in that intervening time, both his daughters have had two kids each. He's never seen his four grandchildren. And he lives with the ongoing extraordinary pain of estrangement from adult children. That's the wilderness, right? Every church I've been in, there have been adults who have lived with that kind of pain. And it's a different sort of pain to the pain you get from rebellious teenagers because it's like, how do you ever deal with that? You're completely powerless. And you apologize, you ask for forgiveness, but there's no healing. So that's, in that situation, we need counseling. And I say that not because I'm a, we're trying to set up a counseling center, though that would be a good idea, but because the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 3, which sets up chapters 4 and 5 that we're going to look at. It says this, um, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's our, our, our temptation is to just give up on God. That's what it means by a sinful and unbelieving God. We're going to, Egypt was better, the promised land isn't coming, it's all too hard, Lord, forget it, I'm going to do my thing. And then it says, but encourage one another, okay, daily. That word encourage is the Greek word parakaleo, which actually is often translated counsel one another. Uh, counsel one another, get alongside one another. Actually, get alongside and yell at them is sort of one way it can be translated. Uh, get deeply into each other's lives to encourage each other as long as it's today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, this is the great danger that we're, our hearts will be hardened and we'll start to think, yeah, actually God has given up on us. Heck yeah. It's much better to look after ourselves. Uh, and we've got to count. We need counseling to stop that happening. Don't we? But now, here's a problem with counseling. What sort of counseling do we need? Right? Because counseling is complicated. And, and there's sort of two... Um, uh, so we need, we need counseling. That's the first point I want to make. To stop our hearts being hard. Uh, point number one. But, listen... Uh, there's, there's two kinds... There's two continua of counseling, as it were. What sort of counseling do we need? And uh, you can draw the continuum like this, but I'm going to... There we go. It's profound. Um, on the one hand, if we're stuck as adults, if we're in pain, 
and life is difficult. One type of counseling we need is, is somebody to get alongside of us and just sit with us in our pain, put their arm around us, cry with us, be completely non-judgmentally accepting, don't we? We desperately, desperately need that. That's what we need here. Uh, and that's, that's often understood, actually, in our culture. Our culture is very fond of this sort of this mode of counseling. We need unconditional acceptance. Just wh- whatever we are going through, just to sit and listen and cry with the other person, right? It's one of the premises of, for example, the recovery movement, the 12 Steps program. That no matter what you bring to the group, what you will hear is just, yep, we're here for you. No judgment. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, messed up my life as well, so I'm here for you, sister. I'm here for you, brother, right? Love, grace. But is that all we need if we're stuck? What else, do we, what else might we need? What are we? We might also need a little bit of truth, right? A little bit of, actually, you know what? This is the way the world really is. Here's why you're in the mess you're in. You're actually responsible. Wake up, grow up, smack around the face. Here's the three things you could do right now if you got off your bum and stopped all this navel gazing to actually progress things, right? Here's the card to go see a lawyer. Here's a card to go see a doctor so you can get some help for the neurotransmitters in your brain. For example, here's, here's some things you can do right now. Here's the truth of the world. Like, get on with it, man. Is that right? Now, we need both. Because, listen, if all I get is unconditional acceptance and tears, I actually run the risk of just being stuck. But if all I get is the truth... Well, I'm never going to hear that. How can I hear that when I'm broken and hurting? And, and, different, and here's, the, here's the challenge, right? Different people and different cultures have a different propensity to offer different kinds of comfort and counseling. Some of us are real feelers, aren't we? We just, oh man, if someone's in pain, we just, our hearts go out to them like, I just want to be with you. Like, oh, yes, that's us. Some of us culturally are like that. Some churches are like that. Some organizations are just... <sighs> Others of us are, are fixers. We're not feelers, we're fixers. So it's like, well, you've got a problem. Let me tell you how to fix it. It's pretty damn straightforward. Like, come on, wake up, smell the roses. Your world's not that bad. That's a first world problem right there. You're not starving to death. Get off your bum and do something about it, right? And it might be incredibly useful. Different cultures are more oriented towards fixing things. Now, here's a question. Um, How do we know which to offer or which we need? It's really complicated, isn't it? It's not that easy to tell. Sometimes someone might need this, and other times they might need a bit of that. This morning, our daughter Freya went overseas on exchange, left for a union for five months, five and a half months. That's a bit sad. Last night, there was a bit of hay fever, so there were a few runny eyes and a bit of rhinitis and might have done something to do with a bit of sadness. And, and I think, you know, Freya's a little like me. She has an idea, and she goes, let's do it. It's going to be great. And then it's only once it started, she goes, oh, my goodness, maybe I should have thought about this a little more. So last night, her friends have gone, and she's on her bed, and she's crying, and I'm hugging her. And I, at that point, what do I do? How long do I sit there? 
there and hug her and just go, oh, sweetie, oh, oh, it's going to... And how long do I step over here and go, listen, sweetheart, it's five and a half months, more people die on the roads in Australia than will die in planes, you'll probably be fine, you're more likely to be sexually assaulted in your home by someone you know than by a stranger in Reunion Island. Uh, there are people all around about you, uh, there's emergency numbers, there's support, you're with a great family, it's going to be okay, suck it up, let's go to bed, because uh, tomorrow's an early morning. <laughs> well, <laughs> how, how, which one do I do? Which is best for her? Which is best? Both. Both. Right? True. Now, it gets even more complicated than that. My, my ability to offer to this kind of ministry or this kind of ministry is really shaped by my own sin, Right? Let me, let's think about that. So uh, my ability to tolerate your pain is really limited by my own selfishness because when your pain really hurts me too much, I distance myself from you. And that distancing and not being present to you in love, that's sin, right? So if, if, if we're called to love people as ourselves, when I distance myself from you because your pain is too much and I protect myself, that's sin, Right? So my ability to love you and discern what's going on is shaped by my sin. But now, here's the other thing. Around the truth bit, my ability to tell you the way the world really is is also limited by my sin. How so? Well, I want you to like me. And so I'm not going to tell you some unpleasant truths because if I tell you those truths, you might reject me. And I don't want that. So I back off telling you the truth because really I want your approval. So your, my need for your approval stops me offering you the, the, the loving gift of a description about the way the world really is. So what do we do? Where do we find this sort of counseling? Well, interestingly, we find it in Scripture. So the book of Hebrews has this tension uh, and let me tell you, when you, when you just, we're going to go through Hebrews, back to Jesus, back into Hebrews, and then to coffee. So uh, that's the journey we're on. Uh, here's what the book, when you read the book of Hebrews, you see it's, it's full of amazing passages of love and the, gent, the sweet gentleness of Jesus, right? Um, uh, here, you know, it ends off, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is like you come to God and he is going to give you a metaphysical eternal cuddle. He's going to be with you. He's going to sit with you because Jesus is a high priest and what does the high priest do? He deals gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. So the high priest comes and he's just gentle. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Strong theme through the book of Hebrews. But what else do you find in the book of Hebrews? Well, listen. If you stop following Jesus, you're going to hell. And if once you follow Jesus, and then you stop following Jesus, there's no sacrifice left for you. You've crucified Christ again. You are done for. So you better wake up to yourself. Oh, that's a bit harsh, right? Isn't it? They're both there in the book of Hebrews. So what's going on there? Well, it's not just the book of Hebrews. Because, you see, we actually need both. We need the grace and the mercy and the love and the gentleness, and we need the sternness and the warnings and the truth. We see this beautifully in Jesus' life. So... Um, 
Dick Lucas preaching on John 11, maybe like 20 years ago, Dick Lucas from St. Helens Bishopsgate in London, very old guy. Uh, and he, he, talks, he talks about Jesus um, uh, in this wonderful sermon in John chapter 11. And he's at the, bed, he's at the, the funeral service of uh, Lazarus, right? And uh, Martha comes to him. Jesus had delayed getting there. And Martha comes to him and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never lie. Do you believe this? Uh, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. What is, you know, she's grieving. Her dearly beloved brother has died. She's come to Jesus and said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. What does Jesus do? He interrogates her on her theology and gives her a little lesson. Well, now, what do you believe? Come on, here's the truth. It's the ministry of truth, right? Fascinating. A few verses down, Martha's sister, Mary, comes and asks Jesus the same question. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Same question. Ministry of tears. So that's what we see in Jesus, ministry of truth to Martha, ministry of tears to Mary, because that's what we need. We need the tears and we need the truth. And what we see in Scripture is Jesus is the counselor par excellence who knows exactly how to bring together the tears and the truth for us. How is Jesus described in Isaiah 9? A great Christmas reading. He's described as what sort of a counselor? A wonderful counselor. It's the same word. He is the the one who more than any other being in the universe is able to bring together in his life and in his ministry and in his relating to us the ministry of tears when we need it and the ministry of truth when we need it. Isn't that extraordinary? That's where we get what we really need. You see, if all we ever get is tears, then we're just going to be stuck. And if all we ever get is truth, then there's no motivation or capacity to hear and to move forward, and we're going to be crushed. So we're either stuck or we're crushed. (laughs) Until we come... Alan, by the way, if you do take on the truth and it works, you become proud. So you either get proud or crushed, or you get stuck. And Jesus says, come to me, Come to me. I'm the wonderful counselor, and I will cry with you, and I will, sh- I will tell you the truth, and I will set you free. Okay? How do we see this in Hebrews? I'm glad you ask. Uh, the ministry of tears we see. I'll just finish the continuum here. Here we go. The minute, uh, just to remind it, rub it in. Ministry of tears and the ministry of truth. How do we see this worked out in the book of Hebrews? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we see the ministry of tears uh, in Jesus' priestly ministry. Jesus is the high priest, as we see in uh, chapter 4, as was read for us. 
Um, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. By the way, the word tempting is, can also be translated testing. So we have a high priest in Jesus who in every single way that you and I have been tested in our journey of faith in the wilderness, Jesus has been tested. And he's done, been, and that's happened so that he can cover over our sins. That's what high priests do. They treat us gently, so aware of our brokenness, and they represent broken, messed up, desert-dwelling humans to God in a way that brings them healing. And Jesus, and the, and the, the writer to Hebrews says he's been t- tempted in every way. So let me ask you, uh, sisters and brothers, have you ever been rejected by people, particularly those you love and trusted, who Well, Jesus was. Have you ever been unfairly accused of stuff? I mean, if you've ever been a parent, you'll know you get that from your kids all the time. But really, unfairly accused of stuff by people who have power over you. Well, Jesus had that. Have you ever been lonely? Well, Jesus was lonely. Have you ever been under enormous financial pressure? Like, have you ever been broke? Well, Jesus was stone cold broke when he died. The Son of Man didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He was homeless. (laughs) Have you ever felt utterly alone and abandoned by God? Jesus was utterly alone and abandoned by God. Have you ever felt completely publicly shamed and humiliated? Well, Jesus died naked, utterly humiliated, accursed, a laughing stock. That's the minute. And so we have, now, now listen, this, is, this makes Christianity different to any other religion. We have a God who is, has entered our experience fully, completely, and knows from the inside out what it's like to be tested as a human being on this journey through the desert. No other religion has that. It's like a bit of the difference. Um, I remember when I was at medical school many years ago, um, uh, they did this stuff on, on, on bedside manner, and I've always been interested in how medical people deal with sickness. And uh, I remember reading an article from a doctor telling the story of how he had gone from being a, uh, a surgeon who had dealt with people, but had never gone through surgery himself, to then recounting the experience himself of actually having to be tr- a patient in the medical system, treated as a patient, and ended up on the table and under the knife. And how that just changed how he treated everyone from there on. We are the only religion in the world whose God has gone onto the table and under the knife for us, like us. He doesn't stand there distant and uninvolved. He comes with us into our experience in everything that we, you and I have struggled with and battled with. Isn't that wonderful news? <laughs> but he's not just an ordinary priest. How does, Jesus, how does the book of Hebrews bring the truth ministry to us? Well, look at this. I didn't really know this until I studied for this this week. 
In verse 6, and then again it's going to pick this up in chapter 7, it develops this idea that Jesus uh, is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There you go, huh? Who's Melchizedek? He's got a cameo role in Genesis 14. Okay, just Melchizedek walks on, walks off, that's it. And then bumps up again as a descriptor of Jesus. Why is that so significant, do you think? Has no beginning or end? Yeah, that's good. Oh, mate, he was king and priest. That is exactly right. You see, he's the only, uh, he's the only priest in the Old Testament who is also a king. Every other priest, and so in the Old Testament, those two roles were separated. The priests were there for the ministry of tears to cover over your sin. The kings were there with the ministry of truth, representing God. This is how the world works. You do this, I chop your head off. You do this, I stone you. You know, that's the kings represented God and his transcendent uh, truth to the people. The priests represented broken, fragile people to God. Melchizedek was the only priest who was also a king. And so when the book of Hebrews wants to show us how Jesus brings uh, the truth and the tears together, it says he's a priest unlike any other priest. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek who is simultaneously the transcendent king of the universe and the suffering, dying priest for us, identifying with us, entering our finite experience. changes everything to see Jesus like that. One of the most beautiful passages in in the Gospels, in John chapter 8, we see Jesus talking with a woman caught in adultery, don't we? Uh, So this woman has been caught, she's been brought in by all the male leaders of the community, they're getting ready to stone her, and Jesus looks at them and says, hey, listen, guys, if any of you hasn't sinned, you cast the first stone. They all slowly drop down their stones, they walk away. And then what does he say to the woman? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does he say? He says, listen, I know you've sinned. I'm the king. I know that the truth is what you've done is wrong. (laughs) But I'm not going to condemn you. I'm your priest. And I think Jesus was there in John 8 going... I know that I can do this because I know I am not just in the moment sending you off, but I am the king and the priest who's going to bring those two things together as I die for you. I know your sin. I know your sin is so bad that I had to die, but my love for you is so great that I'm glad to die for you. So go, sin no more. And how does that get us unstuck? How does that help us through the desert? Well, look at what he says to her. He doesn't say to the woman caught in adultery, he doesn't say, listen, honey, you're an evil, wicked woman. Go and sort your life out. She knew it. It was not in doubt. He doesn't berate her. He starts with, the, with grace and acceptance. He says, I won't condemn you. But then he doesn't say to her, listen, it's, I, I'm just with you, man. I know this isn't sin. Sin is just a social construct. Uh, you know, you, you are free to construct your own reality and live your own way and find your own truth. He doesn't just sit with her. He says, listen, I'm not going to condemn you. Then he says, go sin no more. He doesn't say to her, listen, 
go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I'll love you. He says, I love you, therefore go and sin no more. I won't condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. Let your behavior be changed by my acceptance. Don't think that your change of behavior will make me accept you. That's how we get unstuck. That's how we move forward. When we look to Jesus, our king and our priest, and we go, do you know what? The power to keep moving, the power to resist sin, the power to love and to serve, even when we've given up and fallen down and compromised tragically. The power comes when we find in Jesus a priest who embraces us as we are, and then a king who graciously leads us on and says, no, I don't go and sin anymore. Change. I'm with you, man. I've loved you, so go be different. That's the power to change, right? Now, how do we find that? How do we find that counseling? How does that become real in our lives? Well, again, go, let's go back to Hebrews 3. Right at the start of this whole discussion, it says this, but encourage, counsel, counsel one another. For this to be real in our lives, friends, we've got we've to get alongside each other and yell this good news into each other's ears. <laughs> we need community. We need a community of spiritual friends who, as, as I have had Jesus sit with me in the ministry of tears, as I've received his priestly forgiveness, and as I have experienced his kingly orders to go and sin no more and to live for him, I bring that to you. And I don't come with arrogance or humility. I say, hey, come, listen, don't give up. Yeah, it's hard. Yep, we're in the desert. But listen, we've got a priest and a king who's with you and who's leading us. So come on, come on, let's, let's do one more day together. One more day. Don't worry about next week. Let's just today. Don't give in today. You can do it one more day. One more day. One more day. I need that. And my life's pretty good right now. I mean, it's been really bad. I'm sure at other points in my life, it's going to get really, really bad again. Right now, it's okay. It's pretty good. But I still need this because my heart gets hardened and I get tempted to give up. I need daily encouragement. So this is the challenge for our church, right? To become a, a church, what one writer has called, of thick community, where our levels of spiritual action, of interaction, are profound and honest and real and deep. And regular. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. This is no. This is no rebuke for not coming every Sunday. I mean, I, I just think if we if we really understand this journey we're on and how wonderful Jesus is and how prone we are to wonder, we should be looking for this kind of encouragement and counselling from others every day, and we should be offering it to others every day. Just getting alongside. Like, how do we build that? That's, inter that's an interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> Just saying that. 
So when we meet, when we get together for coffee, when, when you pick up the phone and talk to someone, when you interact with someone online, when you're at work with, with someone who you know is on this spiritual journey, let's, like every day, let's go to the stance of how can, I, how can I find a sister or a brother and just encourage them to keep on with Jesus and how can I find that for myself, right? And that's not something we can program from the front. You know, we, we sometimes think, oh, the church needs to provide for us. Well, we are the church. There's no one other than us that makes up Darling Street Church, or if you're listening online, your church in Canada or Japan or the UK or wherever you're listening from. It's you. It's got to come from us that says, I want to move deeply into people's lives to offer them this sort of encouragement, sort of counseling, because my life has been changed by the wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Uh, our Lord and God, um, just thank you so very, 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 very much that you, you completely, absolutely, totally understand our frailty and our tendency to wander and to drift and for our hearts to become hard. You understand that, and yet you, you were without sin. You never gave in and you never let our sin uh, overwhelm you and cause you to distance yourself from us. And I pray for our church and for anyone who's listening online and other churches that you, you will work by your spirit to weave us together as a thick spiritual community where we're, our relationships are rich with this kind of spiritual engagement with each other, of, of counseling each other to, to, to just get through today with Jesus, to put one foot in front of the next and to keep our hearts soft as we journey together. Uh, and so, Holy Spirit, I mean, my, you know, do this. And uh, may we bear the fruit in our lives forever and for always. Amen.